Hey everyone, welcome back to Distributed Dialogues, the podcast about decentralized technology and how it affects the world around us. I'm Dave. And I'm Graham. Today, we're exploring the cryptocurrency method for fundraising. For several years, token sales, better known in the media zeitgeist as initial coin offerings, or ICOs, have been widely publicized, discussed, and legally disputed. Why? Well, for starters, they've unlocked the ability for startup companies and projects to raise millions of dollars within minutes. A shiny jewel for entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, yes, but these startup godsends are unregulated and widely disputed as violating security laws. Dave, how's uh, how's Caesar, your little uh, hermit crab? To be honest, Graham, Caesar's not been himself lately. I don't know what it is. He spends all his time hiding in his shell on Instagram or Twitter. And even when he's out of his shell, he just kind of scuttles around. Yeah, you know, with so much access to what's out there these days, a lot of hermit crabs can get pretty bogged down in the mess. Apparently, a study by Oxford College says that about 90% of hermit crabs who spend a significant amount of time on social media platforms have crustier claws and poor self-image. I really wish there was something I could do to get him back to his old crappy self. Well, Dave, lucky for Caesar, in brave new times like these, top minds have already begun thinking of innovative ways to help hermit crabs successfully adapt to new forms of technology. You see, nowadays, hermit crabs consume massive amounts of online content, and not all of it's good for them. There's so many ads out there for luxury terrariums, crab shell polish, exotic white sand, even foreign crab brides. It's an endless barrage. They can get inundated and depressed with the constant stream of seemingly better lives of their crab kinmen, which is a total fabrication, but we'll save that for our episode on the perils of social media. So, should I flush him? Jesus, no, what's wrong with you? Yeah, you're right. So what should I do? Well, instead of flushing him, you can upgrade his armor. Like a new shell? Well, not just any old shell will do. It's got to be shiny, really shiny, and encrusted with jewels. That's why I want to introduce you and Caesar to the Shiny Crabs Bedazzling Kit. That's right. Shiny Crabs is the first ever bedazzling kit made to fit under the shell of a hermit crab in a way that's both secure and environmentally friendly. Shiny? That sounds like the answer to all our problems. How does it work? Using the newest polysynthetic bamboo adhesive imported straight from Macau, the Shiny Crabs Bedazzling Kit works in three simple and easy-to-do steps. Only three? Tell me how. Okay, Dave. Well, first, clean that crab's dirty old shell. You'll need a clean surface for those shiny jewels to hold on to. Second, apply the adhesive to the crab's shell. Now, don't be afraid to get too liberal with the adhesive. It's been tested extensively on animals and will not harm your crab. And third, apply your jewels and fancy up your crab. That's it. That's so easy. Exactly. Take your crab from drab to fab in no time. Caesar's gonna look so cool, his Instagram's gonna blow up! Podcasting has always been our first love, but with the bear market tightening on our software wallets, we've decided to launch a little side hustle. A shell company, if you will. Shiny Crabs, TM. Based out of Delaware, obviously. Shiny Crabs, TM has already picked up a lot of traction around the office. But to take our budding venture to the next level, we realized we needed more capital. A lot more. So to help us get to the finish line, we've decided to launch our own ICO for Shiny Crabs. That's right, crab coins coming to an internet URL near you. To prepare for our ICO, we sat down with Mark Adesso, a securities lawyer who can explain the viability and legality of the crypto fundraising phenomenon known as the initial coin offering. 
Wait, I thought we asked him about securitized token offerings, STOs. Potato, potato. They're pretty much the same thing. Remember what Mark said? ICO, STO, those are just media terms that someone came up with, right? right. You know, yeah. uh, I don't think anyone that did an ICO actually called their thing a coin. Most of them called them a token. So I thought that was funny. Was at least call it an ITO. Full disclosure, in all seriousness, even though Mark Adeso is a securities lawyer with a reputation of being one of the world's top attorneys in the area of initial coin offerings, all of what he is saying in this interview is his own opinion, not legal or investing advice, nor does it represent those of his law firm, Waller. So the main reason why we wanted to hear from Mark was, one, we just needed to wrap our heads around this whole token selling phenomenon that happened in recent years. Two, Mark is lauded as one of the first lawyers to take a company through a, technically speaking, legal token sale. And three, a podcast interview is the easiest way to get free legal advice. And before we can get into anything that Mark says, we should also preface with some key information. And listen closely. If you're new to the space, or maybe you just need a refresher, this stuff can get really tricky. We're going to go with the term ICO for the rest of this episode, because token sales, SDOs, initial coin offerings are all arguably the same thing. ICOs are a type of funding in which some person or organization, usually a company, creates and issues their own cryptocurrency in exchange for legal tender from public investors. Though these cryptocurrencies or tokens have no real value when they're initially issued, investors buy in with the hope that their value will increase in the future. There are many ways a token's value can increase. It can be adopted as a currency or store of value, like Bitcoin. It can be required for the use of specific software platforms, such as Ethereum, supposedly. Or it can simply act as a digital representation of value on a blockchain of a share in a company like a stock. Most often, ICOs are used by startup companies as a source of capital to raise money without having to seek regulatory compliance or intermediary help such as venture capital funding. <clears throat> Shiny crabs. Tokens issued through ICOs have garnered an enormous amount of interest from investors for two main reasons. One, ICOs promise the possibility of significant returns or getting a stake in something that will be more valuable in the future. Bitcoin's success is responsible for a lot of this hype and promise. Ironically enough, it had nothing like this in its early stages of adoption. It was, after all, the first cryptocurrency. Two, despite the best efforts of regulators, they are essentially available to anyone in the world with a pulse and an internet connection. According to the ICO monitoring website, ICO Bench, the total capital raised through ICOs in 2018 was a little bit over $11 billion. Whew, that's a lot of legal tender. And a real study from Boston College reported that fewer than half of all ICOs survive after their first four months, while almost half the ICOs sold in 2017 failed by February 2018. Ouch. That's worse than restaurants. The first ICO was held in 2013. And since then, ICOs have fallen out of existing regulations. They have been completely banned in some parts of the world, such as China and South Korea. Most have been prone to scams and security law violations. And that's why Mark is dead sure they are securities. And if you fall into the same camp, you're likely to call ICOs STOs. In our own country, the most prominent regulator of ICOs are the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, whose job is to regulate securities. And here's Mark's summary of the situation. Uh, like a lot of things that happen with any new technology, whether it be blockchain or something else, uh, there's just so much media coverage of any, you know, popular trend that, um, you know, especially the tech media, tech crunch, those kinds of outlets are just looking to put names on things. Right. Um, and I think that the STO security token offering is just a name of something that already existed. Right. Um, you know, in my view, 
um, and this is what I told Kristen that very first day, you know, is that if a company says we're going to sell something that, you know, represents uh, some sort of uh, interest, uh, you know, economic interest in our company and, you know, really regardless of what the white paper says, what the business plan says, in reality, the company's goal is to raise money, is to raise capital for itself, right? That's pretty much going to be a security, right? So, you know, my view is kind of that pretty much every, and, you know, we can talk about utility tokens, what a company might need to do to not be deemed a security so far. And I want to be very clear on this. This is, this is something that is not clear in the media. Um, there is no such thing as a utility token uh, as far as the SEC is concerned. Nobody... Uh, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Nobody has gotten a no-action letter from the SEC, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, there are no rules or regulations that say there's a such thing as a utility token, right? So, um, but, you know, I think that there is a way that you could sort of get the SEC, if they're willing to do it, and no one knows if they're willing to do it, to say this, this particular token is not a security or this coin is not a security, right? But no one's done that. That doesn't exist. So, you know, I've had several people recently say, oh, no, there's some SEC person, and they're talking about Hester Pierce, uh, who said, no, that there are such things as tokens. And, and you know, if, if you go to any uh, uh, sort of uh, blockchain conference or any, you know, financial world conference where an SEC examiner speaks, uh, you, may, you might come in late, you might miss this part. Before they say anything, they say something along the lines of, you know, I am... Uh, you know, speaking on my own behalf. These are my own opinions. This is not the opinion of the SEC. All those quotes are her speaking, uh, you know, for herself, not for not for the regulatory body. And so, you know, lots of people, especially lately, I don't know what's, what it is specifically lately, but uh, a lot of people are, you know, they, they come in and they say, oh, no, no, you know, like, we're utility token, we're doing X, Y, and Z. So that, you know, and I say, no, there's, that's, that's no such thing. I don't know what you re- where you read that, but there is no guidance that, you know, that teaches you how to not be a securities token, right? So um, that's a long way of saying that basically every ICO that's been done since day one, you know, with the possible exception of Bitcoin and Ether, uh, you know, they're all securities token offerings, right? They just happen to break the law effectively and not register if they were selling to U.S. persons. Uh, and that could be U.S. people living abroad also, just to be clear. Uh, you know, they, they actually should have done a registered offering and they didn't. Uh, so, it, you know, it, there's an argument to be made that every single ICO actually is a securities token offering. And so an STO is just the new buzzword to, to describe uh, the fact that people have woken up, uh, to the, for the most part, I think that that you know these these ICOs are securities offerings, right? Uh, and that that you know they need to be registered or be exempt from registration uh, with the SEC, at least if you're talking about U.S. people. As of now, no formal law has been made in the U.S. about ICOs, and though he has a lot of legitimate evidence backing his opinion, it's safe to assume that securities experts might consider token securities because that's their area of expertise. At least at the regulation level, that's exactly what has happened. SEC has said these are securities, right? But the IRS says it's a commodity, okay, right? The CFTC says it's a commodity, okay? But the CFTC also says we're afraid of the SEC. So if the SEC says it's a security, we're not going to really argue about that, you know? So it's sort of an interesting... Wait, so the CFTC is afraid of the SEC? I'm being a little silly, but the you know I, my view, my opinion, the in the regulatory you know hierarchy, um, the SEC is a bigger, scarier, better funded organization, and the CFTC is a little bit like the redheaded stepchild of the securities world regulators in a very small, underfunded. Trump has made it pretty clear he does not like them, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, and so you know CFT, and so what happens is though is that each regulator 
regulates certain things, okay? And so what, because there is no congressional action around any of this, right, the regulators were sort of free to do what they wanted. So every regulator, in my view, sort of said, oh, a token is X, and that X is whatever they personally, they individually as, an orga- as a regulatory body can regulate, right? So the CFTC doesn't regulate securities, the SEC does, right? So it, it makes sense that the CFTC would say, oh, no, it's a commodity because that's what we regulate. And then at the end of the year, when it's budget request time, we can say, oh, we have this whole new thing that you've read about so much in the media that we regulate, you know? So we need much more money in our budget this year to regulate this commodity, right, you know? Um, so... Uh, so that, that's a really that's that's kind of a tangent, but uh, but to answer your question is you know I, I think that um, because the SEC is sort of the the big dog in the room among all these regulators, and that they sort of got out ahead of the other regulators. And frankly, I think the SEC is probably the most right. Also, and I think I do these these look a whole lot like a security. Uh, you know, instead of ha- just offering an asset. Uh, I think they're, what they're doing is that asset-backed token, right, where it's a security that then has the, the asset um, behind it. But, you know, they're not really doing an offering of that asset. Like, to your point, like a, you know, a, you know, a, a stable coin that's tied to the U.S. dollar, I don't know how successful a company that was like, we're selling U.S. dollars for $1.25 would be, right, you know? Exactly. <laughs> you know? In terms of regulation, the SEC has been known to subpoena many ICOs that sell their tokens to American investors. Many cases are reported as examples, but no one outside of the SEC truly knows how many ICOs the SEC has gone after. Like Mark says, it's a horse got out of the barn type situation. But so, you know, no one know, no one outside of the SEC knows how many of these ICOs they're currently going after. Um, I, I think that, and this is my opinion, I don't have any, you know, uh, you know legal, regulatory, like, you know, uh, manifesto saying this. This is just my guess, is that, that, you know, I think they sort of said, okay, well, the horse got out of the barn ahead of regulation. And they, they got ahead of us. It's going to be too hard to go too far back in time, you know. Uh, you know, that money is gone for a lot of these. So it's sort of a, you know, a futile gesture. Uh, also, a lot of them were offshore offerings, right? The SEC can only regulate, uh, you know, U.S., uh, touching uh, entities, so but I think they're pretty regularly going after them now. You may not see it in the media, but they're they're doing it. So Dave, let's say we're playing it safe with the SEC, but we still want to issue crabs on the digital market. According to Mark, here are our options: either we register with the SEC or we go exempt. Here's Mark with the details. Probably the number one phrase that comes out of my mouth on a daily basis, regardless if we're talking about blockchain or something else, uh, because I'm a securities attorney, is that any security, I say this all the time, any security either has to be registered, okay, or exempt from registration. Any security in the United States, that is, right? Or any security offered to a U.S. person, which means, again, people living abroad that are are U.S. citizens or here, or if you're a U.S. issuer, you know, you, you have to follow that very basic principle. It has to be registered or exempt from registration, okay? And so the vast majority of the security token offerings being done right now have found an exemption from registration with the SEC. Uh, I I can at least speak for the ones that we're working on. By and large, they're using an exemption from registration called Regulation D or Regulation S, okay? Regulation S means that you're selling to offshore people um, with no directed marketing efforts here in the United States. Um, So, for example, if you had a company, I don't know, Singapore, um, 
uh, you know, and you were only selling to Singapore residents, even if you were incorporated here, you could use Regas to sell to them. And that, and there's there's some rules you have to follow. Um, you know, again, you can't market in the United States is, is probably the biggest one I would say, uh, and that's sort of how why it's exempt from registration is because you're not offering to the U.S. public. Might be it might be uh, under Singapore law, it might might be required to be registered because you're selling to their residents, but because you're not selling to U.S. residents, that's that's kind of where that exemption stems from. Um, Regulation D, uh, very broad strokes. Here, there's two versions of it. One you can generally solicit, means you can market to the public, basically, uh, and one you can't. Uh, the one where you can't, that's only used in, in uh, instances where you know you have someone that has that big Rolodex that knows the the high net worth individuals. Um, because you can't market it, it's, it's you know a pre-existing business relationship type stuff. Um, so with that one, you can take a few uh, what are called unaccredited investors, but you have to have audited financials and some other things. So again, very rarely used for STOs. Uh, Rule 506C of Regulation D, um, that's the one that's probably the most used for U.S. You know, touching STOs. Uh, and the, the thing you need to know about that one in particular is that only accredited investors can invest in those offerings, so high net worth individuals. Um, so that's what a lot of these STOs are doing. They're just they're marketing generally because they can uh, under the changes to Regulation D that were put in place by the Jobs Act in 2012. Uh, and, and they're only selling, you know, offering and selling these securities, security tokens to super wealthy people. Well, if we did go exempt, what's to stop American investors from just using a VPN? So that really opened up, you know, what is uh, sort of, you know, fair game for the government to ask for, uh, you know, and that filters down to broker dealers and people that run KYC checks. Um, so you have that overlay that is, it's pretty broad what they can ask for uh, and pretty broad what they can dig into because of the Patriot Act effectively. And there's a whole analysis I can do. I won't do that to you, but that, that there's a whole thing about that, that. And it's pretty, if you look into it, at least in my view, it's, it's pretty scary to like what, you know, what is actually not your personal information when it comes to something like this, especially securities transactions. Um, and then on top of that, you have the other overlay. Uh, we're doing a lot of offerings out of, for example, uh, the Caymans. We're doing a lot of offshore offerings, right? And, you know, after the Panama Papers and some other uh, sort of, you know, bad press, the offshore jurisdictions and, you know, in the islands type jurisdictions have gotten, they're even more strict about KYC and AML. So, you know, the, the level of... Um, a stringency that they put around AML and KYC, I actually think it would be very hard for a bad actor to get into one of these if it's all set up correctly. That all sounds super complicated, and it kind of makes me paranoid. Besides, the main thing about shiny crabs is that crabs have got to be available to the general public. The wealthy elite are probably rolling around in thousands of bedazzled hermit crabs already. Lucky lobsters. Dave, I think we've got to register. Though many companies are in the process, it's not clear whether any STO has completed successful registration with the SEC as of the time of this interview. Well, from what we can tell, that's because all of this is really new, and for a lot of companies, simply going exempt seems like an easier route. Also, legally, a securitized token offering has to be a little more hush-hush because it follows security laws. But then there's always those cryptic news headlines where the SEC bags another ICO. The latest one of those regulatory takedowns that I saw was the Gladius situation. Kind of a first. So the Gladius Network LLC actually self-reported to the SEC for overseeing an unregistered token sale back in 2017. They turned themselves in? Yeah, so by self-reporting, Gladius was able to avoid penalties provided they pay all their investors back who requested it and also re-register their tokens as a class of securities. What do they do anyway? Kind of wild, actually. They crowdsource computer bandwidth from people and organizations to defend against DDoS attacks by aggregating bandwidth. 
Oh, that's kind of cool. But this kind of behavior definitely supports Mark's point that registering ICOs as securitized token offerings might be what we see more going forward in the U.S. crypto scene. But, you know, I think where the trend is, it's it's already starting to go and it's going to go more and more, is towards registered offerings because lots and lots of uh, STO issuers uh, want to be able to sell to everybody. They want to be able to sell to the general public. You know, generally speaking, that's how a lot, a lot of the ICOs originally raised money. They weren't raising money from institutional investors, family offices, super rich people. They were raising money from the Internet, effectively, right? You know, a whole mixed bag full of people. And you can still do that. It's just a matter of being compliant and, you know, doing the things that any other company issuing a share of common stock, for example, would do, right? Um so that's a pretty simple concept when I say it, but uh, it, it is a process and it is a costly thing. You need to hire somebody like me to help you, you know, navigate the legal pathway. You have to get an audit done of your financials. So uh, you know there are some steps, but it's not it, for, for any company that's raised a decent amount of venture capital. It really isn't that daunting. Can you imagine the kind of press we'd get for shiny crabs if we became the first token offering to be registered with the SEC? Investors would launch us to the crab moon. You know, Dave, we might have to look out for PETA. One battle at a time, Graham. At this point, I was wondering, what's the actual difference between an STO versus getting traditional venture capital funding? Mark says it comes down to who has the power. He-Man has the power. Duh. The difference is control, I think. Okay. Um, you know, something I've said often is, is that uh, going back to the Jobs Act, another thing uh, that happened with the Jobs Act is that they uh, amended Regulation A. Okay, and so there's actually a way to use Regulation A to do a go public type uh, off- securities offering. And to me, you know, most startups don't need more than fifty million dollars in a year, and that's sort of the cap for Reg A offerings. And you know, okay, let's say it costs one hundred, one hundred fifty grand between the legal fees and the audit and all that stuff. That's a pretty small amount if you raise fifty million dollars. You know, even if you raise five million dollars, it's a pretty small outlay up front. You know. Um, and so I, I, this is something I say often is I don't understand why more companies don't go public earlier using Regulation A or just doing a light S1 um, b- because the, the, what it really boils down to is control, right? That if you do a, a, an ICO yourself, right, you take money from the public. Generally speaking, especially in the ICO context, it's not the kind of investors that are going to dictate uh, how you should run your business, um, you know, what your business model should look like. You get to decide that, all of that, right? You take the money and you're basically free to do what you want with it, you know, inside the confines of the law, right? Okay, venture capital is pretty much the exact opposite of that in most cases, right? Now, don't get me wrong. There are some awesome venture capital firms out there that, you know, if they invest in you, they have the, the company's best interest in mind and they will, you know, bring in people that you could never meet on your own and they will help you grow your business in incredible ways that you couldn't, even if you raise $50 million, right? Don't get me wrong. But there are also a lot of venture capital firms that are effectively investment companies, right? And their only mandate is to make money for their investors, their LPs, as it were, their limited partners, right? So the way that most venture capital and private equity firms are set up is that you have a small management team that takes money from very wealthy people, right, that don't want to know what happened, don't really want to know what's going on. They just want to know that they're getting a certain percentage of return every quarter, right? And so all that that fund is going to do is... Is or its its main focus is to make sure that those investors, those LPs, those limited partners, uh, the people managing it, the general partner people, are doing things so that those LPs get their eight percent every quarter. So there's no problems, you know. So they can do this five more times, and everyone gets rich, right? So 
if, if you, you know, if that's sort of the mandate, to me, there's a cognitive dissonance between the startup entrepreneur who just wants to grow his business to do its best for his business and revolutionize whatever corner of the market they're trying to revolutionize, you know, and maybe doesn't care about someone getting 8% returns on a regular basis, right, you know, versus someone who only cares about getting that return. Like that's their only mandate, right? And so, you know, what happens very often in, in my experience is that, you know, this company takes money, they have this idea, and, you know, as just by way of example, one thing that can go wrong, but there's lots of things that could go wrong, is that, uh, you know, their idea will take more than five years to execute fully, okay? Well, guess what? A lot of these venture capital funds end after five years, right? So the investor is looking for all of their money back plus plus the return, the 8% return, 13%, whatever was promised, right? And so if your idea takes seven years to ex- execute, that's not going to work for the VC, right? Because they need their money out two years earlier, right? Okay. So the VC, who probably owns more than 50% of your company, you know, if it's a big financing round, right, is not going to tell you, not going to maybe even allow you to do the things you would need to do to make your seven-year business plan successful. They're going to make try to get you to do it in three years, right? So that, that sort of dissonance is a real problem, I think. So, that, so you know, to me, that's sort of the difference. That's a, it's a, it's a really long answer. The short answer is control, right? That, you know, could there be some sort of minority uh, shareholder lawsuit or could, you know, a bunch of shareholders get together and, and cause you problems and sort of act like a VC? Yeah, that's possible. But that generally doesn't happen in this ICO thing. Basically, you get the money. And then it's up to you to grow the value of the company so that the investors stay happy, you know. But it's really you're in control, and you know at least the way we write them, there's risk factors and there's disclosures that say, hey, this could very easily go to zero. This company has no history, you know. It's got you know no operating history. Um, you know, it was recently formed. They've never made money. The auditor said that as a going concern, this may not make it past year one. You know, we put all those things in, so it, it, the the investor who at least reads it knows this is a pretty risky investment, and it could go to zero, and that's the risk they're taking. Venture capital. You could put all that stuff in there. The venture capitalist is not going to invest then, right? <laughs> you know, the venture capital is investing with the idea that, you know, they're putting a bet on you. And they know one out of ten actually succeeds. But, you know, they're going to act like you're going to succeed. And that's you're sort of required to do it within their paradigm. So if token sales mean more power and control over a company or project, what power do token holders actually have? Turns out it all boils down to this cryptic sounding legal document called the Certificate of Designation. It depends on what the organizational documents say. So one thing that we're sort of trying to, uh, you know, we at Waller are trying to make more popular is just the concept that a token can be a share of preferred stock. The share of preferred stock is the token, okay? Um, right now, it seems like most of the companies sort of separate that, and they create this nebulous, like, other class of security called the token. Um, our view is that um, you can just call it a share of preferred stock, Right. Uh, but either way, what ends up happening is is that you've got to sort of lay out under the under the the way the, the laws uh, that that like that govern corporate structures, which is securities sort of make up a part. Uh, you know, equity securities make up a part. Is that you have to lay out those rights and preferences? Okay. So why I like the idea that's just a share of preferred stock is that, for example, in a Delaware corporation, what you can do is you file the articles of incorporation, uh, you form the company, right? Then you can file what's called a certificate of designation. And what that certificate does is it just lays out the rights and preferences of that particular class of stock that you're designating out of the greater pool of stock, common, preferred, whatever it might be, that you had originally sort of said you were going to issue when you formed the company. 
that, does that make sense? Okay, so um, so you know you can make it say pretty much you know as long as there's not some illegal construct you know you can make those rights say whatever you want. So you can give people voting rights, you can give them dividend rights, you can give them liquidation rights, uh, redemption rights. You know you can put a put or a call option in actually it, build it into security. You can do all those things uh, with that certificate of designation. So uh, you know another area where I think that there's sort of needs to be a little more. Um, uh, you know, legal carefulness. I'm not sure that's really a word, but uh, it is with these tokens. It's like, well, does it say anywhere in any legal document what your rights actually are, right? And that sort of goes both ways, right? Is that if you have a token holder, that you know the only thing their organizational documents say is that this this entity can issue common stock. Well, then what did you really receive? If we know it's a security, you know, you raise money on it, you know, it like you know, if you want to get into the Howey test, we can get into that. But let's you know, let, let's just and I, and I also another sort of like soapbox I have as a quick sidebar is that the Howey test. No one ever said the Howey test is what makes a security or doesn't make a security, right? It's what the SEC says is the security is the is the determining factor. The SEC never said they're using the Howey test necessarily. Okay, so but anyway, so let's but let's say it meets all the factors of the Howey test, right? It's it's for sure a security. Well, their organizational document says they only have common stock to issue. Okay, so did you really? receive some sort of common stock, you know, did, did they defraud you and like not file a certificate of designation with Delaware like they were supposed to? And that can sort of go both ways, right? So the token holder could probably sue and say, you know, they defrauded me. I thought I was getting X, Y, Z. And by the way, they never even designated these properly, which is, you know, that's a misrepresentation by itself. Okay. Uh, similarly, the company can take advantage of the investor and say, well, we never designated those per se, you know, uh, so we can say what the rights are whenever we want, you know. Um, so, so I think that um, that'll be something that develops more as the STO gets more refined is that uh, investors will start asking, where is that document filed with Delaware or who, who, whatever state or whatever jurisdiction you, you, know, you incorporated in, you know, where is that document that says what my rights and preferences are? So Dave, what rights do you think we should give our token holders? Uh, one crab token is equal to a coupon for one bedazzled crab kit or the like value of goods. Wait, that sounds more like a stable coin to me. Hmm, kind of does. Maybe the crab coins could serve as a coupon for our products as they go up in value. Can you even securitize a coupon? I don't know if you can, but uh, coupons don't technically lose their value, but they do have expiration dates. Anyway, that's another conversation we'll have to have. I mean, generally speaking, coupons aren't a security, right? Yeah. Um, be- because, like, if I get a coupon for, for, like, from Walgreens, we'll just say, like, I don't expect that coupon to go up in value if Walgreens does really well that quarter, right? You know what I mean? Right, <laughs> like, right. and, and Walgreens never issued me the coupon with the expectation that there would be, like, you know, an increase in value of the coupon, you know, like, right. uh, you it's know. Very clear. Right, right, yeah. right, you know. Um, and so, and that's also, not to sidebar too, uh, too many times, but that's also where I think there is potentially a case for utility token is if you built something like a true coupon, you know what I mean? I'm not sure how that would work, like what you would buy with that coupon at this point. I don't think most companies of ICO are like selling at a retail level, but, you know, you know something like, like that is sort of where the line is of like, there are cases where you could see a token if it was truly a coupon, you know, wouldn't be a security necessarily, right? right. Um, but, but yeah, so... But, you know, so like the, the Walgreens coupon example, like that's clearly not a security. So that doesn't really apply. Right. You know, 
um, I'm trying, I, I'm not really, I can't even think of one right now of like a, a popular ICO where they would have some sort of retail good where you would get a coupon for it. I can't think of one. You I, don't know, know. I don't know. Yeah, like no, yeah. there's no like skin cream ICO. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, you know, so, so yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think, and, and, you know, that's a whole other sidebar is like, you know, beauty products. Like I feel like you could raise so much money on beauty products doing a token offering. Okay, so token holders with a certain number of crabs could be the first to get new product? After a successful launch of our bedazzled crab kits, investors could also get a semi-solid guarantee of future access to the new product lines, like a CBD oil-inspired crab cream, which could begin development phase in early next January. CBD oil crab cream. That's a good idea. And you know what, Dave? Don't worry. If this all goes belly up, say goodbye, shiny crabs, and hello, boiled crabs. Ooh, I'll get the butter. Oh, yeah. I have a really good pot at home and a little crab claw cracker thing. Caesar would taste good with butter. Ooh. Hey there, Caesar. I know you're feeling down, buddy, but... I'm here to help. No, put put the iPad down, get off of Instagram, and sit down for a second. I got something to say. Caesar. I know you're feeling down. Caesar. Let's put some jewels on your crown. Caesar. Yeah, just go ahead and sit right down. I got something to tell you, buddy. Don't worry about that glue. It's polysynthetic bamboo. It ain't gonna hurt you, bud. Make us all filthy rich. Yeah! Buy crab corns today. It's gonna go all the way to the moon. Shiny crabs for every girl and boy. Yeah, that's the truth. Definitely not a shell corporation. This thing is totally legit. Seriously, it's not a scam. Buy crab corns today and rake it in, yeah. Oh, hey, Caesar, sorry, buddy, I forgot you were there. Looking mighty good in your shell there, buddy. Oh, I see you gotta go. You got a hot date. Well, I'm happy for you, buddy. Keep on keeping on. Buy more crab coin. Graham out. Distributed Dialogues is a BTC media-produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Visit letstalkbitcoin.com for more engaging podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at DistributedDD for all the latest news and updates. Special thanks to Billy Sly from the Crypto Cantina for all the great music. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. We'll see you next time.